without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So there are many people in the world who would concede that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual historical person who lived in the ancient world of Palestine. And some have even given him a prophet status. But the testimony of scripture doesn't allow us to stop there. The Bible says that Jesus is more than just a prophet. And we'll sort of look at that a little more. Um, Jesus was unique and uh, his beginning or origin, or rather his lack of beginning or origin, and that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So we're going to look today specifically about the deity of Christ as laid out in scripture for us. So we're going to go through a bunch of texts um, and just, just let the Bible inform our thinking on Christ. Who was he? Um, how should we understand him as we view him through the lens of scripture? Okay, so first we're going to look at some direct <laughs> scriptural claims. Some direct scriptural claims. Uh, the word God, uh, the word for God, theos, is used of Christ in the New Testament. This word, theos. In John 1, 1, it says that uh, the word was God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word uh, there for God is theos. In John 1, 18, uh, God the one and only, it said in the, in the NIV, no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. Again, theos is used there. John uh, 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Theos. So again, speaking of Christ, these are direct scriptural claims to the deity of Christ. <laughs> Romans 9, 5 speaks of Christ being God over all. Uh, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is Theos over all blessed forever. Amen. All right, so Christ is God over all. Uh, Titus 2.13 uh, speaks of Christ as our great God and Savior, our great God and Savior, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, um, Hebrews are great a great passage. I mean, all, all of Hebrews is great, but those early chapters of Hebrews uh, setting Christ over and above Old Testament prophets, over and above uh, the priests, over and above the sacrificial system, over and above angels. Um, Hebrews 1 lays out that Jesus is God. And speaking of Jesus, it says, your throne, O God. Uh, but of the Son, he says, your throne, of, of Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, speaking of Christ. <clears throat> and then uh, 2 Peter 1.1 speaks of Jesus as our God and Savior. Um, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And then 2 Peter uh, 1.11, 2.20, and 3.18 speak of Christ as Lord, which leads us to our next point. So, again, scriptures that talk about Jesus uh, or using the word theos of Jesus, this God of Jesus, and then also jumping down to the word Lord or Kyrios is used of Christ. The word Lord or Kyrios. So this word uh, Kyrios or Kyrios uh, is used 6,814 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Hebrew name Jehovah Yahweh the Lord. So Old Testament written in Hebrew. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, the word Kyrios is used 6,814 times, translated uh, as Jehovah, Yahweh, or the Lord. Luke 2.11 here speaks of Christ as a Savior, or who is Christ the Lord. Someone want to read Luke 2.11 for us? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Curious. <coughs> Luke 1, 43, Elizabeth speaks of Mary as the mother of my Lord. Again, curious. And then Matthew 3, 3. Oh, sorry, you guys, we have a handout in the back. It's two pages. So make sure you grab page one and page two of that. Matthew 3, 3, prepare the way of the Lord. For this is the one who has spoken, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Kyrios, make his paths, make his paths straight. And then Matthew 22:44 says um, of Jesus in questioning the Pharisees about himself. Now he's quoting directly from Psalm 110. He says, "The Lord sit at, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand." This is, uh, I think, a really good. Uh, passage, along with some others, when talking to those who would claim that Jesus is not God, um, specifically Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, hold heavily to the Old Testament and have questions about the New, um, taking them to an Old Testament passage like Psalm 110, um, and and reading this, having them read this text, and just maybe ask, okay, so who do you think this is talking about? And of course, they're going to say, uh, God, Father and then take them to a New Testament passage that directly quotes that Old Testament passage and read that for him. Okay, so who, who, who are we talking about here? He's quoting that passage you just said was God the Father, but here it's talking about Christ. So again, we see that Jesus is God and the scripture is not vague in making that clear, that clear for us. Um, how about 1 Corinthians 8.6? Someone wanna read this for us? Thank you, Amanda. So again, Christ being Lord, Christ being Lord. And then Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 says, you Lord laid the found, you, you Lord founded the earth. Um, and I want to read this. Let's, let's take a look at this. Let's, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, 10 and 12. Hebrews 1 is such a good, good passage. <clears throat> Hebrews 1, verse 10 to 12. 
So this is, this is another place where the writer of Hebrews is quoting directly from the Old Testament, um, and specifically Psalm 102.25. So I'm going to read verse uh, 10 to 12 here, Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, thank you, Norm. Again, another, another great passage that correlates with the Old Testament. Again, he's quoting directly from Psalm 102, speaking of Christ. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. We talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about um, Christ in creation, Christ as the Logos, the word spoken in creation. Um, and here the writer of Hebrews, pulling sort of that idea in Psalm, in Psalm 102 out and saying, you, Lord, Jesus, you of the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And again, this word, Lord, is kurios. Kurios is also used, it's seen a lot more in different epistles in the, in the New Testament. But again, another um, attributing of deity to Christ, theos, God, and Lord, kurios both speaking of Christ. Um, some other strong claims to deity in the New Testament. John 8, 57 to 58, um, the I am who I am. So the, Jesus, so the Jews said to him, Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. If Jesus had merely wanted to say he existed before Abraham's time, he would have said, before Abraham, I was. But the Greek word translated was in the case of Abraham and am in the case of Jesus are two different words. The words chosen by the Spirit make clear that Abraham was brought into being, but Jesus eternally existed. Right? We see that in John 1.1. There is no doubt that the Jews understood what Jesus was saying because they took up stones to kill him for making himself equal with God. So this is a, the Jews at that time even understood this claim. It is, it, it's, it's crazy for us to look at this and say, well, Jesus wasn't saying that he was, he was God. No, he was. <clears throat> <clears throat> right. Exactly. Right. 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 So he is the eternally begotten Son of God. He has existed eternally. <clears throat> right. So, a statement like this, if it is true, it was it was blasphemy and was to be punished, uh, prescribed by the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament in Le Leviticus 24. But Jesus committed no blasphemy. He spoke true words. He was and is God, the second person of the Godhead, equal to the Father in every way. Um, one apologetic theologian says, uh, the issue at hand is the phrase, I am, in verse 58. The Jehovah's Witnesses have translated the Greek present tense, I am, into an English perfect tense, I have been. 
which is more consistent with their theological position, that is, that he is not God in the flesh. And the Greek, the words are ego emi. Literally, that is I am. Ego emi is the present active indicative first person singular I am, and not the perfect active indicative first person singular I have been. That's, that's clear in the Greek. It would seem that the natural and correct translation into English is I am, but the New World Translation does not translate this into the perfect tense. Well, why? He says, I am firmly convinced it is because translating John 8.58 as I am would be too close to God identifying himself as the I am in Exodus 3.14, which is the, a clear correlation here. Therefore, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society has opted for a different rendering. The it Greek, is it's, Greek includes active perfect tense, right? Right, right. So I've said it. Now. Right, and so it's uh, again, it's it, it's convenient to translate it in such a way that is consistent with an idea of thinking that Jesus is not not God, but it's clear in the Greek, and you have to you have to intentionally. Uh, translate that differently to go around the fact that Jesus is God. Um, it's, it's clear. And I would add to this that the Pharisees attempt to stone him again for the proof they understood Jesus was claiming to be the very God who was revealed to Abraham in Exodus 3.14. Jesus is God and it's, it's clear. We, we don't have to try and come up with uh, eloquent arguments for the deity of Christ. Let's go to the word open it up, and let God speak for himself. He speaks clearly about Christ and his, his deity. Um, let's read Revelation twenty two thirteen. Someone want to read this for us, Revelation twenty two thirteen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. <clears throat> Thank you. So Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the beginning of all history, the creator, and also the goal for whom all things are made. All history is moving toward the reconciliation of all things in him. That's made clear in Colossians as well. This also communicates to us that Jesus is the eternally begotten son. Jesus, the son of God, did not come into existence at the turn of history when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He always has been God's eternally begotten son. Again, Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Speaking of Jesus here, I am the Alpha and the Omega. <clears throat> and then John 1.1 speaks of Jesus as the Word of God. We talked about that, the Word of God, that word Logos used there in the Greek. Um, Jesus is the, he, he's the Word, he's the active speaking of God in creation also in, in salvation, which we can talk about another time, but Jesus is the word of God. All right, what about this title, uh, the title Son of Man? We talked about this a few weeks ago as well in detail in our lesson on the names and titles of Christ in the Old and New Testament. This title Son of Man in Acts 7, 56. <clears throat> let's, let's read that, so I'm going to talk about that for a little bit. Acts 7, 56. If anyone's there, you can go ahead and ahead and read it for us. Acts seven fifty six. He said, "Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." Okay. Thank you, Norm. 
So on the surface, it would appear that son of man is an ordinary phrase for human being. He was born of a man, and there's no offense there, but there is a much deeper meaning here found back in Daniel 7, in which he was claiming an exalted role in redemptive history. He's claiming an exalted role in redemptive history. And again, um, on our lesson, Names and Titles of Christ in the Old and New Testament, you can listen to that and hear in detail, uh, we expounded that in detail, how Acts 7 correlates with Daniel 7 and that title, Son of Man. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 26, 64 speaks of Christ as seated at the right hand of power. So again, we're just trying to lay a foundation for the deity of Christ. We're just laying a foundation, a scriptural basis for the deity of Christ. Uh, Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Right, again, speaking clearly of Christ. <clears throat> and then Hebrews 1, again, 2 to 3 speaks of Jesus as the Son of God. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. It's, I love to see those words sat down in scripture in Hebrews. It, it's, so, it's so good. And we're going we're gonna to read that. Um, Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, I'm going to read. This, this word, this phrase, sat down, speaks volumes about Christ's mediatory role on behalf of the regenerated sinner. He sat down at the right hand of glory. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> and I'm going to read, um, let me see, I'm going to read 11 to 14. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, 11 to 14. <clears throat> It says, and every priest stands daily, keep, keep that in mind, every priest stands daily at his service. So the writer of Hebrews, again, all of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ over Old Testament systems, sacrifices, angels, prophets, everything. Christ is superior to all things. That's what Hebrews is about. So here in this passage, he's talking about the superiority and the supremacy of Christ over and above the Old Testament sacrificial system and the priests of that sacrificial system. And he says in verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But on the contrary, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. I'm sorry, those who are being sanctified, not sacrificed. <laughs> sanctified. <laughs> It'd be bad for us to be sacrificed again. So that's been done once and it's, it is finished. All right, so every priest stands daily. This sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it, it was a continual thing. It was never meant to be... <clears throat> the end to which the sacrifices point. They point to something greater, namely the Lamb of God, right? So these priests stand daily, monthly, 
annually, standing, making sacrifices, and as it says clearly, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Christ comes on the scene, offers a sacrifice, is the priest and the lamb, and then sits down, signifying the work is done, right? The priest no longer needs to stand daily. The final priest, the great high priest, has come and offered himself as the Lamb of God and now sits down, right? So I, I love that term. I love seeing he sat down. It's done. My salvation is, is fixed in him. I can be assured in Christ. He's sitting down, right? It's done. The priest has sacrificed and it's finished, right? So that by way of strong claims of deity um, in the New Testament. So let's jump to um, evidences that Jesus possessed attributes of deity. Any thoughts before I jump there? Got 10, 15 minutes. <clears throat> Any thoughts, anything stick out to you? Oh, what, um, what happened to Aaron's family after <clears throat> the sacrificial system was over? Like, what? I don't know, I, I don't know why I'm asking. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, you said his family. What, what yeah, are you referring to? Because you know, like, what was Aaron's tribe? Because um, he said they had to stand daily. The priests, Le yeah. Levi. Right. What happened? What happened after? What, what happened after the, the sacrificial system was over? Well, Christ came as the so the, that the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of something greater to come, which was Christ. Right. So when Christ. Uh, the, the fulfillment of it comes, the, the foreshadow is, is no longer needed. The, the shadow fades once the fulfillment comes. So Christ comes on the scene. He is the high priest. He does offer the sacrifice of himself, and it's finished. So we no longer need um, priests or anything that would ultimately, because if we did, it would say that what Christ did wasn't sufficient. Right. But again, it's pointing to something greater. Absolutely. So that there is no need for a specific uh, priesthood. Right. He makes his own priest now. Absolutely. Great point. Great point. Great point. Great point. Any other thoughts before we jump to evidence of Jesus possessing deity? <clears throat> it will take us eternity just to gather or to tell you this regarding this deity. I mean, I, I read, I, I hear, but I know that. I don't have what it takes to fully, fully grasp it. So. Yeah, none of us. <laughs> none of us do. <laughs> yeah, man, none of us, none of us do. We just read and we hold it as truth, believe it, and may the Lord use it to encourage our hearts. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> so our second point here, <clears throat> evidence is that Jesus possessed attributes of deity. So um, Matthew Matthew 8, 26, 27. Someone want to read this passage for us? Jesus stilling the storm. <clears throat> Thank you, Lucy. <clears throat> so you see Jesus here stilling the storm. Um, again, pointing to him uh, possessing attributes of deity. Um, and then Matthew 14, 19, with the uh, loaves and the fish, it says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, 
He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And how much was left over after that happened? Like 12 baskets, was it? So, again, Jesus uh, miraculously multiplying fish and loaves, uh, pointing to his <coughs> deity. Um, John chapter 2 uh, speaks of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, John 8, 58 uh, speaks of Jesus' eternality before Abraham was, I am. Uh, we just looked at Revelation twenty two thirteen, Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega. Um, and then also Mark 2, 8 speaks of Jesus' omniscience. <clears throat> it says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to himself, why do you question these things in your hearts? Um, so he is omniscient, right? He knows all things. And we'll talk about that in detail in a bit as well. Um, John 1.48, John 6.64, John 2.25, John 16.30, all continue to speak of Jesus' omniscience. <clears throat> uh, there are some, actually, what am I right here? <clears throat> Oh, actually, before I jump there, uh, John six forty four. <clears throat> but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were to believe in him and who was to betray him. John six uh, sixty four. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were to believe in him. Um, so he's not um, guessing in salvation as he draws men to him himself. Uh, he knows. And then John two twenty five. And Jesus needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. Um, so Jesus is um, omniscient. Jesus also we see claims of his um, omnipresence in Matthew 18, 20. It says, for where there are two or three, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this passage is, this is not in my notes. I usually get in trouble when I get off my notes, but it's just a thought. This passage, or how a lot of people understand this passage, is not faithful to how the Bible lays it out for us. It's not just simply saying we can, and I have a church background that's more um, on sort of the charismatic health wealth side, and so it was common, hey, I want this house, the Lord's going to bless me with this house, let's get together. Um, you know, it's, we gather together, we pray, we're here, Jesus is with us, we're two or three gathered together, we would name and claim something, uh, some house or a car or a new job. We ought to get together and pray, that's not the point. The point is, looking at this passage and saying, where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them, <clears throat> we can gather together and we can lay hands on something and say that because <laughs> we're together, Christ is in this with us and wants this for us and it'll be so. That's not the context. The context um, is in dealing, it's, in, it's church discipline. It's dealing with um, how, when, when, the, when the apostles are here and they are deciding on one um, in their belief in Christ or their excommunication from the church, as they say it, it is so Christ is with them. He's given them authority um, as the foundation of the church, those building stones that the church is built on, clear in Ephesians chapter four. Um, let me get back to the notes real quick before I, keep going off trail there. Um, Matthew 28, 20, again, on the omnipresence of Christ, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always <clears throat> to the end of 
the age. <coughs> I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I went sort of quick through omniscience, um, but how is Christ omniscient? And this is a, a common thought here. How can Christ be omniscient when both Mark 13, 32 and Matthew 24, 36 state that no one knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return, not even Jesus? So a common question arises, how can Jesus be omniscient or know all things and not know when he is to return? You ever been asked that? No, I never even thought about that. (laughs) Or thought through that? What's that? Okay. Sure, I'll throw it out there. Any other thoughts? <clears throat> We're going to talk about it in detail, but it's, it's a point worth thinking over. How can Christ be omniscient? How, how can he know all things um, and not know, not know when he is to return? <clears throat> yes. some terminology that I like. Um, I would say laid aside or veiled, but um, yes, you're definitely on the right track there. I'm going to let um, MacArthur helpfully answer this for us. Um, and I, I like the way he words it, which I would agree with how, how he words it here. I think it's important to see a distinction uh, between um, Christ not possessing and Christ veiling or setting aside. Um, he says, although he was fully God as well as fully man, which we see in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14, Christ voluntarily, which we're getting at, Norm, he voluntarily restricted his use of certain divine attributes when he became flesh. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is to be held on to during his humanness. It was not that he lost any divine attribute, but that he voluntarily laid aside the use of some of them and would not manifest those attributes except as directed by the Father. That's just good stuff. Um, I like the way he worded that. So yes, we confess that there is mystery here that exceeds our finite minds, but far from this being... Far from seeing Christ uh, laying aside voluntarily uh, this, this attribute and using it as directed by the Father, we shouldn't see that as some deity-stripping weakness of Christ. Rather, it should cause us to glorify Christ more for his great humility. I mean, he's God. <laughs> so, I mean, all of Philippians is, is laid out in such a way to where it's, it's to evoke uh, humility and the Christians. You ought to do this in light of Christ doing that. Look at what Christ has done. So do this. And so, again, it should, it should amp us to just give more glory to God for his humility um, rather than seeing, well, you know, that, I don't know, how should I, maybe he's not, no, he's, he's, he's fully God, and it just amplifies his humility. And so we should talk about it in that way. Um, a few more here before we 
jump to our last point. Um, <laughs> we see the sovereignty of Christ. Mark 2, 5 to 8. <clears throat> I got there. Mark 2, 5 to 8 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, to the paralytic Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why, what does he mean? I'm sorry, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God? Exactly. That's the whole point. Um, God, Christ is able to forgive sin because he is God. Uh, John 2.19 and then John 10.17-18 speaks of the immortality of Christ. John 10.17-18 says... For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, again, just the humility of Christ. <clears throat> this charge I have received from my Father. Um, Hebrews 6:17. He has an indestructible life. Um, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Christ has an indestructible life. Um, I'm going to hit on this. Lastly, in this section, Christ is worthy to be worshipped. Philippians 2, 9 to 10. <clears throat> it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Forgive me for going quickly through this. I just want to try and get this in, in the last five minutes. Um, on that Philippians passage, uh, there's so much to say. When you get a chance, go back to Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, along with Romans 14, 11. Um, and consider what's said there about this Jesus um, of whom, before whom every knee should bow. It has roots in the Old Testament. It's not a new idea. Um, Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, and Romans 14, 11. Um, it is interesting that Jesus never rejects uh, worship um, in the New Testament. Even the angels in Revelation 19 know their proper place. When John falls down at the angel's feet to worship him, the angel adamantly says, you must not do that. The strength of this word, must not, is clear in Greek. It's uh, M-A, uh, pronounced may. It's a primary participle of qualified negation. Primary participle, qualified negation. It is to say, God forbid, or absolutely not, or stop, stop. So again, even angels they know their proper place. They, they, they reject worship. They say, stop, don't worship me. In Revelation um, 19 there, they say, don't worship me, worship God, right? Yet Jesus never once denies, rejects, or deflects worship. Why not? Well, because only God is to be worshiped, and Jesus is God, okay? Only God is to be worshiped, and Jesus is God. Last point here, if I can get through all of this. Um, did Jesus give up some of his divine attributes while on earth? Um, this is referred to as the kenos theory, uh, from the Greek word kino, which means empty. Uh, I'm sorry, the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory states that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes while he was a man here on earth. 
These attributes were his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. Christ did this voluntarily so that he could function as a man in order to fulfill the work of redemption. Yeah. This view was first introduced in the late 1800s in Germany um, by a man, uh, uh, Tomasius, or Tomasius, uh, 1802 to 1875, who was a, Luther, a Lutheran theologian. Um, is this true? Should we hold to that same line of thinking? Um, he claimed this from Philippians 2, 5 to 7, which we just read, that he did not count equality with God, but emptied himself. So from that, um, Tomasius has gotten this uh, kenosis theory, but the early church did not understand it this way. The text does not say that he emptied himself of divine attributes. The text says he emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant. So the purpose here is to show Christ's great humility and to encourage humility in us, the saved, redeemed children of God, to imitate Christ. Right? So this is clear from the surrounding text. Philippians 2, 13 to 14, you see in verse 3, uh, Philippians 2, verse 3 to 14. Verse 3, it starts there, do nothing from rivalry or conceit or self-ambition. Self, self and then verse 14, so these are sort of bookends. Verse 3 and verse 14 are bookends in that Philippians 2 passage. And then verse 14 says, do all things in this way and that way. So it starts, do nothing from rivalry, conceit, self-ambition. It lays out the deity of Christ. And then it goes on to say, do all things in this way. So that's the context around that little, that little passage there. Um, so again, the larger context of the New Testament doctrine does not support the kenosis theory. Um, Christ did not become less than who he was. He always was and always will be God. He veiled those things in his humanness. A um, couple minutes. In conclusion, uh, Christ is fully divine. Colossians 1, 19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Colossians 2, 9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, this is huge. This is, it's weighty terminology to speak of the deity of Christ. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Bible uses no small terminology to talk about the deity of Christ. And then Matthew 1.23 speaks of Christ as Emmanuel, which is God with us. God with us. Um, when it says the fullness uh, abides in him, it reminds me of Matthew 17, when he was transfigured on the mountain. Yeah. All of the symbol was within him. Yeah. He came out. He right. Did, that's why Peter didn't know what to say. What is this? Yeah. Before that, it was nobody had seen truly right. how full of light and brilliance and all of these things. And then, you know, in a moment's time, it was all gone. He goes back to his old self. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, that's a great point. This sort of unveiling, a, a, a glimpse of the unveiling of his, his full deity. Yeah, that's a great point. So a couple, couple last points here. Is the doctrine of the incarnation unintelligible today? So our proper response is not to reject uh, the dear and central teaching of the scripture about the incarnation, but simply to recognize that it will remain a paradox. 
there is some mystery there, the hypostatic union, Jesus being fully God and fully man. But the Bible teaches it, so we stand firm on it, which we ought to do. Um, why was Jesus' deity necessary? Jonah 2.9 speaks, says that salvation is from the Lord. So no one else could bear the penalty of our sins. First uh, Timothy 2.5 says, um, only someone truly God and truly and fully God can be the one mediator. That's my, my favorite passage, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus had to be man because only man could atone for man's sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system of bulls and goats was not sufficient. Uh, this is clear from Hebrews 10. And Jesus had to be fully God because only God could take the wrath of God in a satisfactory way. Jesus doesn't pacify the wrath of God. He doesn't sweep it under a rug, which is Christ. No, he satisfies the wrath of God, which means he takes it on himself. He bears the full weight of God's wrath. Only God could satisfy God's wrath of the eternity of hell that the redeemed sinner deserves. There is much mystery there, and it's mind-blowing. Um, but he had to be God in order to do this. And Christ dies for, in the place of every elect uh, person in God, which is crazy. Um, John 14, 9 says, only God could reveal God most fully and bring us back to God. Jesus said to him, do I have that up here? No. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Um, so I'll close with um, 2 John 9, which says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Um, that's an, an apologetic affirmation we should hold to. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, no matter how much they say they know uh, the Father. If they do not know the Son, they do not know the Father. Whoever abides in the teaching of both the Father Whoever abides in the teachings has both the Father and the Son. Uh, we talk to a lot of people who claim to know the Father and claim to speak on the Father's behalf as witnesses of Jehovah and, and other things. But again, Christ, Christ, Christ. It's about the personal work of Christ. We cannot sidestep Christ and get to the Father. We cannot sidestep Christ and be saved. Jesus is God, and only in Christ is there salvation. Uh, for, for any. So we hold the word up. We compare what we hear to the word. We see Jesus as God here. So when we listen, we listen expositorily. We listen for these affirmations that Jesus is God. And if not, we come with the truth um, that he is. And that's, that's huge for us. He had to be fully God um, for our salvation and the glory of God. In Christ is the reconciliation of all things. So um. We will stop there. We are out of time.